Almighty God, we ask that you would come among your people and feed us, Lord, through your word read and your word preached here this morning. So we commend ourselves to your nourishment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Why don't you go ahead and turn with me to our Old Testament lesson from Amos, the prophet Amos chapter 5. You can find this, I believe, on page 6 or 768, page 768 in the Burgundy Pew Bibles there in front of you. Amos kind of hides there among the 12 prophets there in the middle of our scriptures. In this passage, the prophet Amos attempts to pierce hard and self-assured hearts. In chapter 5, Amos issues a striking call for Israel to give up their festival pilgrimages to three great shrines, Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal. Just listen there. You can turn with me over one page from where you're at there on 768 to the first part of chapter 5. This is how, this is how Amos opens up He says, hear this word that I take up against you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Just as a word of aside, Amos is often thought to be a a prophet without hope, uh, an antagonistic prophet, one that offers no no bright light at the end of the tunnel for the people, one that's often perceived sometimes by scholars as being angry, Um, but he's not. I think sometimes so much of the prophets, are, our impression of them is informed by the tone of voice we hear them in. Um, but Amos takes up these words in lamentation. This is out of great sorrow with which he speaks here in verse 2. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, The Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Beersheba, that's what we'll focus on. This is the place that looms large in the context of what Amos has to say in verses 14 through 24. If you're not familiar with it, Beersheba is associated with all three of the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis chapter 21, a pagan king, Abimelech, declares to Abraham at Beersheba, God is with you. In all that you do. In chapter 26 of Genesis, Isaac receives a vision from God at Beersheba in which God declares to him, Do not fear, for I am with you. And then years later, in Genesis 46, Jacob in his old age is heading for Egypt at the invitation of his long lost but recently found son Joseph. And he receives a vision at Beersheba in which God says to him, Do not be afraid. I will go down with you. At Beersheba, each of the three patriarchs received the assurance that God's presence, of God's presence and companionship with them, that it would go with them wherever they would go. 
Even down into a a land like Egypt. The loving voice of God declaring to each of them, I am with you. Often in love relationships, whether a marriage or a deep and intimate friendship, places take on unique and meaningful significance. Maybe it's the place where you first heard the words, I love you, from your spouse. And anytime you're back there, it brings up all the emotions of that moment. It brings back all those great aspects of your relationship together. Or maybe it's the childhood place that you and your best friend return to over and over again. Maybe it's that creek in the backyard, whatever it is. But in that place, all those wonderful aspects of your relationship are brought to mind Or maybe it's just that restaurant you seem to always default to and neither one of you can decide on which one to go to becomes meaningful to you. These sorts of places have a power to bring us back to these moments of love and presence. And that's what Beersheba was for Israel. It was the place where God said, I love you. I'm going to be with you. And so from the time of the patriarchs, Beersheba was a place of profound significance for Israel. And they developed patterns of taking pilgrimages to Beersheba. And it's these pilgrimages that they came to rely upon as the means that guaranteed God's presence and his continued companionship. So they would have been utterly shocked to hear Amos's prophecy, an oracle from God, from Yahweh, telling them not to cross over to go to Beersheba again. No more cross over to Beersheba. This was God's way of saying all is not well in our relationship. Something's up. Something's amiss. You see, the people of Israel that Amos addresses here were doing all the religious things. As we heard in the latter part of our lesson this morning, they were devout in their observances and their festivals. They were faithful in their sacrifices and their prayers and their peace offerings. But in all this, they failed to do the one thing that is essential. The one thing that is necessary. They failed to seek the Lord. Just like in a relationship, if the other person in that relationship with you is doing all the relationship things on the outside, but they fail in that to seek you. And you know what I'm talking about. To to really be concerned with you and not just the mechanics of a relationship. They thought, Israel thought, that in being religious they could ensure God's presence with them. They thought that in making pilgrimages to Beersheba, the pilgrimage itself or their very presence there in that place would bestow upon them what that place promised and signified, a living relationship of love with God. They were confident that God was with them. That's what Amos implies there in verse 14 or verse 15 when he says, seek good and do not, and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. They were clinging to this. They were confident that God was with them. They were self-assured of the presence of God. So much so that they were actively and outspoken in their desire for the day of the Lord to come. A day when God would be present in a new and more intense way as a redeemer, and as a judge. And in verses 16 through 17, Amos reveals what God's presence in their midst would be like. And in verses 18 through 20, he rebukes this desire to see the day of the Lord. Just listen there. If you have your text still open, you can read with me. Verse 16, 
Therefore says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of hosts, that's Yahweh, the omnipotent one, the Lord. Now that word Lord is different than the first word Lord. This is the sovereign one. This is Adonai. So Yahweh, the omnipotent one, the sovereign, says this. In all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning. Those are the guys that tears are hard to come by, rough men. So from the roughest to the softest, and to the wailing of those who are skilled in lamentation, it's easy for you to shed tears. And all vineyards there shall be wailing. So those places of joy, right? Wine is supposed to be the thing that gladdens the hearts of men, as we are told. And even in the vineyards there shall be wailing. For Notice this. For I will pass through your midst. I will be present. But my presence is not what you think, says the Lord. And then, woe to you, verse 18, who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. And you can strike or there and put it in and, because I don't think or is meant there. And... He's gotten away from the bear. He's gotten to a house and he leans on the wall to catch his breath and the serpent bites him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You see, Amos rebukes them because on the day of the Lord, God would indeed be present with them as they had been claiming he was with them. When he says in 17, I will pass through your midst, but he will not be present in the way that they had confidently imagined. They had become complacent with God, as often we can do in our own relationships with others. And their complacency had been telling them with irreproachable logic that when God, the Lord, comes, it will be to the side of his people. That day will be their crown of glory. All who despise them will see how wrong they were. Everything that they had ever plagued them will be over forever, and all will be gladness and light. But God, through the prophet Amos, shatters their brittle imagination. And he calls them back to pursue the one thing that is essential. Seek the Lord. Pursue the Lord. Seek the good. Love God. And the problem that Amos identifies in Israel is a failure of love. Israel had grown lazy about love. They reduced their relationship with God to a few moments of intense past significance that they relied and returned to over and over again to reassure themselves that God was with them. Don't we have Beersheba? We can go there. We're good. God's with us. But they failed in that daily work of love. Daily nurturing, daily effort, daily practices that build up and strengthen love. They became lazy about love. Like any love relationship, it begins to break down if all that you have to sustain it and keep it alive are a few good moments and memories. Few good parts of your lives that you can cling on to. If, if that's all you have... A relationship begins to break down because a relationship requires that daily work of attention, of attending to the one, of seeking, of pursuing. When God calls Israel here to seek him, to seek and love the good, he is calling them to a daily pursuit of him in all of life. 
It is through daily practices and disciplines of attending to the one we love, to God, whether we feel like doing them or not, that the decision to love is renewed and refreshed and the commitment to love is kept alive. When we become lazy about love, the relationship begins to break down. And that's where we find Israel in Amos 5. They were no longer concerned with lovingly attending to God in daily life, and that was evidenced in the way they treated their neighbors and the poor especially. Listen to verses 10 through 13. This is describing them. They hate him who reproves in the gate. The gate is the court. Right? That's, the, that's, that's the place of decision. That's the, the place of judgment and justice. So they, were, they, they hate the one who sought justice in the courts. And they abhorred him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, they would tax the poor's gleanings from the fields. You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, not giving them justice. Therefore, he who is prudent, who is wise, will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Their lives, everything beyond the religious demonstrations of faithfulness to God, spoke against that. What good is Beersheba? When you fail to pursue justice, to love truth, to seek the good of the poor and the needy, how can you say that you love me? How can you say that my presence will be one of peace and harmony with such actions? That's what God is saying to Israel. Because they were clinging on to the past highs to reassure themselves that God was present with them, even in the midst of their profound departure from God. That all was well in their relationship, they thought. While in reality, they were growing further and further apart from God. How often can we delude our own selves? And this is where we should ask ourselves, is that me? Have I become lazy about love? In my relationship with God? Are you clinging? Am I clinging to some past moments of spiritual high? When we really felt the presence of God and we're doing that to reassure us that all is well, is that what I'm doing? But daily neglecting the practices of love for God that nourish and sustain and build up a relationship with Him? Are you lazy about love? Am I lazy about love? The early church fathers identified this as the vice of acedia. That's a weird word, I know. What the Western church identified later on as sloth. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Acedia is literally translated a lack of care. 
a lack of attending to the one thing that is necessary and essential. And though ascetia implies a failure of effort in part, it is not necessarily laziness as we would typically understand it. You can be a workaholic and be plagued with sloth. Like Israel, they were working hard at all the religious things. They were doing and doing and doing and making pilgrimages and offering sacrifices and prayers in the temple, yet their hearts were twisted with ascetia with slothfulness, because they were lazy in attending to the one thing that mattered, to God, to his revealed will will for them. I was reminded recently of the episode of the Gospel of Luke when Jesus enters a home at Bethany. And there we see Martha in the kitchen, frantic and frazzled, trying to make food for Jesus and his disciples while her sister, how dare her, sitting there at Jesus' feet. Martha is busy at work, and it's good work, right? It's, it's hospitable work, yet in all her doing, she failed to attend to the one thing that was necessary. She failed to attend to Jesus, to sit at his feet, to fix her eyes on him and to listen to his voice in that moment. Though she was hard at work cleaning and making and preparing, she was lazy in love, ironically, doing everything except that which is necessary. And Jesus is really clear about that. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, why are you anxious? And troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. So Mary's action is the one thing that's necessary. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching. Absorbing his will for her life. Mary has chosen the good portion. Which will not be taken away from her. How many of us are lazy about love like Martha? We're busy running around doing good work, work for Jesus, but we never stop to do the one thing that is necessary and essential to that work and to our lives. I'll tell you, that was a rebuke. That was a rebuke to me this week. How often do we get busy doing good work but fail to attend to Jesus? Fail to attend to the one who's present to us. And in that presence, in attending to that presence, receive power for the very work he's called us to do. It's not that Mary shouldn't be cleaning dishes. 
That work's not bad work. It's good work. Someone's got to do it. It's got to get done. But in doing it, we can't allow it to distract us from the one thing that is essential. From Jesus himself. So often we can associate work for Jesus as attending to Jesus. And that's not always the case. In all our doing, we can fail to stop and attend to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him and listening to his voice of love and mercy and grace. Acedia seeks to distract us like Martha from Jesus. It strikes at our identity in Christ and his presence in our lives by his spirit. Acedia is our old sinful self resisting the transformative power of God's love that is fashioning us into the image of Jesus. And so naturally it wants us to be distracted from fixing our eyes on him. Listening to his voice with undivided attention. This is spiritual warfare, folks. Spiritual battles take place on many fronts. Sometimes it's bodily pleasures or bodily weariness that really do open us up and make us weak and more susceptible to sin in our lives. But in the case of acedia or sloth, the battle is first and foremost waged in our hearts. With acedia, we are literally divided against ourselves. You see, we were made for relationship with God. That's what Israel was clinging to, falsely. And if we're slothful, if we are lazy in love, we have chosen to reject that relationship as the way of finding true joy and peace and fulfillment in life. And have chosen to try to make something else do that work instead. And usually it's a turning inward to our own selves. Like Israel, we want the security of having God's love and presence. We want to cling to Beersheba without real sacrifice in the ongoing struggle to be made new by God's transforming love. Acedia ultimately resists the demands of God's love. Acedia, slothfulness, ultimately resists the demands of God's love. So what can we do? And I think this is a a vice that we are all particularly susceptible to in our age. An age of busyness, of frenziedness, frenzied activity, of productivity being a chief value. So what do we do? The desert fathers of the church, monks who devoted their lives to solitude and prayer for the sake of the world, they dealt extensively with acedia. And their recommendation was to cultivate what they called stability of place. Stability of place. At its core, stability of place is really perseverance. The ability to stay put. The ability to stay with it. To stick the course out. To see it through. The Desert Fathers recognize that Acedia possesses a self-perpetuating dynamic. That it resists the very thing that is meant to overcome it. To cure it. And so one desert father said, the spirit of Asidia drives the monk from his cell, but the monk who possesses perseverance will ever cultivate stillness. And we see this stillness in Mary of Bethany, sitting at the feet of Jesus, attending to him in loving attention. She had cultivated a perseverance that in one sense was able to endure Martha. 
and her franticness. And it's this stillness also that we see in Jesus when he breaks away from the busy work of proclaiming the kingdom to desolate and quiet places to attend to his Father in love and prayer. So like Jesus and Mary of Bethany, we too must persevere in simple daily acts of love that nourish and sustain us in the presence of God. Not relying on some spiritual moments of high, as wonderful as they were, but attending to the presence of God in daily tasks. And this is what God wanted of Israel in Amos 5 and what he wants from us today, to seek him, to pursue him, to know him. To no longer resist the demands of love, but to embrace them. And in embracing them, discover that God is present to us, not as judge on the day of the Lord, but as our loving Father. And to discover that Jesus is our doting brother. As we close this morning, the image of perseverance that Amos draws our attention to in chapter 5 of his prophecy is instructive and I think encouraging for us. Because this is where Amos lands too, along with the desert fathers. He lands with perseverance when he addresses God's people as the remnant of Joseph. Throughout his prophecies, Amos is interested in applying the patriarchal names to the people of his day, and so he draws Joseph into view here. Joseph was the man about whom the Beersheba promise of God's presence was asserted to be true, even when every evidence available suggested that it had been forgotten by God. When he was first sold by his brothers as a slave in Genesis 39, verse 2, we are told that the Lord was with him. When things went from bad to worse and he was imprisoned, we hear in verse 21 of chapter 39 that the Lord was with him. And as the days of his imprisonment went by, we were told again in Genesis 39, verse 21, that the Lord was with him. And finally, when hope had sunk below the horizon, Joseph was taken from prison, the prison house, to the throne room in one astonishing leap of reversal because Pharaoh looked at him and said, Can we find such a man as this in whom is the Spirit of God? The Lord was with him. In his life, Joseph responded with perseverance. Not once did he reject God in that. With perseverance. A perseverance that embraced the demands of love, which for him were costly. Demisted or mystified. Like who would imagine what this is? Is this how God loves his people? And that perseverance created a stillness in Joseph even during the most difficult of times and circumstances that enabled him to attend to God and to hear his voice. And this is what we see in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, perseverance that opens up a place of stability amid turmoil and impending trial and pain, a place of stillness in which he embraces the demands of God's love and prayer. And he invites us to join him daily in such perseverance and stillness with words that he gives to the disciples in Mark's gospel. Come away. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place with me and rest a while. And in that place of stability, amid our days of turmoil and restlessness, we can find him 
attend to him and there embrace true rest and peace and life. So beginning today, I hope you, this is something you do every day. Ask the Spirit of God to empower you to persevere daily in embracing the demands of love, attending to the presence of Jesus in your life. That's going to be my prayer. Would you join me in that every day, asking the Spirit to empower you to embrace the demands of love in the presence of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.